man, I'm glad you're here. I hope you're excited for this morning. Um, like I said earlier, I love Easter. I love Christmas and Easter, just a celebration of how much God loves us. And as you heard the kids kind of singing, uh, going through the songs and sharing what they're learning, I'm thankful for the people of this church, just how we all work together so people can come to understand how much God loves them and just loving on those people. It takes a group effort and and so I'm thankful that uh, we have those, those people here and that God has invited us all to be a part of it. I'm glad you decided to be here, uh, whether you're here by your own will or someone woke you up and drug you here. Um, I praise God for that, and I believe God's got us all ready or has something ready for us all this morning um, to teach us, no matter where we are in our relationship with Him. One thing we've got to understand as we already start this morning is all of us come with different perspectives and how we learn things, and how we uh, come to understand certain ideas. Have you ever been in a conversation with a group of people, and they're talking, and you seem to be the only one in that group is not understanding what is being talked about? You ever been there? I mean, would you be willing to admit? Okay, here's my confession. A couple weeks ago, we had our first kitchen renovation meeting, and I'm sitting there, and uh, Mike Matheny is at the head of the table, which is a good spot for Mike to be, because he is, was the carpenter in the, in the room at the time. Rich was, was gone away that weekend, and Jan and Cindy were there, and Bridget, and Mike is telling us, okay, we really need to look for this, and we need to do that, and before we start taking anything out, we need to put this up, and it's going to look like this, and wrap around, and, and everybody's sitting there nodding their head, and I don't know if I was like in a daze, just, just confused, I was just kind of, I was, you know, lying, shaking my head yes, that's part of my confession, just shaking my head yes, oh, that sounds, yeah, I had no idea what he was talking about. But, but everyone else did because Bridget has her computer out and she's just like, yeah, and she's going away and Jan is smiling really big and Cindy's smiling really big and, and, and Cindy says, you know what we should really do? We should do this and have that. And Jan says, I love that. And we should add this room and it should have, and they're all talking and she's like, that's a great idea. Yes. And, and Mike's like, okay, if we do that, then we need to do this and this and this. And Bridget's just like, and I'm just, and and we left that meeting, and I felt like we got something accomplished. I just had no idea what it was. <laughs> and, and so that coming Wednesday, Mike brought me a picture. And it had an outline of what we had all talked about. And all of a sudden, see, I'm a picture guy. All of a sudden, it clicked. And so when we had a meeting that next Sunday, I was able to interject. I wasn't just kind of shaking my head and lying that I understood. I was interjecting in the conversation, and, and, and I could understand where we're going with this and what they were talking about and all these great ideas they were having. I just did not have the spiritual discernment to understand it all. But if you've ever been into that situation, or maybe you've been watching a movie or a TV show, and you're kind of like, what in the world is going on? Then you can understand what we're going to be looking at this morning. So we all learn differently. Some of us thrive in, in environments where someone is teaching and lecturing and we're sitting there taking notes and we're just a sponge and we're taking it all in. Some of us really thrive in that environment. Some of us are more of a hands-on type of person. You can, you can lecture us and teach us until your face turns blue, but until I get my hands on it and I can tinker with it, then I'll finally understand it. Some of us are just really good poker players. We have no idea what we're doing, but we're going to do it. If we did it wrong, we'll learn. If we did it right, we'll learn, but we're going to do it. And some of us, we need someone to walk with us step by step and show us every single detail so we can comprehend what's going on. Finally, there's some of us here that 
You can be taught, you can have hands-on, you can have step-by-step, you can, you can fail or succeed. But until you actually step back and think about everything that's talked about to you, you can process it in your head, you don't fully come to an understanding of what was being said or what was being presented until you're done, you've done that thinking. So we all come with different perspectives, and this, in different ways we learn things. This, the passage of Scripture we're looking at this morning comes out of John chapter 3. It's probably one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture, definitely within the, the New Testament, some say all of the Bible. Whether or not you've grown up in church, you may have this verse paraphrased or somewhat memorized, or maybe you have it memorized word for word, or even if you haven't grown up in church. You've seen the numbers 316, and you've come to understand or have missed your head. I know that comes from the Bible. I know that deals with the church. I don't know exactly what that says, but I know it must have some importance because I see it around a lot. Well, John 3.16, speaking of that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his one and only son, whoever believes in him, in Jesus, will not perish but have eternal life, comes out of a conversation that Jesus was having by a man of Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was having a very difficult time comprehending everything Jesus was saying. He was like me in the kitchen renovation meeting. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. But Nicodemus was asking questions. And so the story begins that Nicodemus is coming to Jesus in verse 1 of chapter 3. He was a ruler of the Jews. He was a Pharisee. And he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can perform these signs that you do unless God were with him. And Jesus replied, verse 3, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What we learn about Nicodemus right off the bat is first he's a Pharisee. A Pharisee would be an individual, would be a highly intelligent individual. They would have all the law of God, all of what we call the Old Testament God memorized because they were to teach the people how to live a life that was pleasing to God. Basically, there's what they would call rules or what we may refer to as legalism today. You do this and you don't do that. So Nicodemus' job, one, was to teach people. Another thing, he's a ruler, so he's well advanced. He's also a Pharisee, and that Pharisees were heavily opposed to Jesus. They didn't really know what to do with Jesus because they understood he did some miracles. They understood he spoke with and taught with authority. But some of the things he was saying, they just could not understand how that related and, and how that went to what they already believed God should be doing. And so most of the Pharisees as a whole just cut Jesus out. They wanted nothing to do with him, and they would lead the charge to eventually kill him. But we find here in John chapter 3 is Nicodemus comes to Jesus' night. One, probably because he's afraid of what his contemporaries may think, what his peers may think, and he wants to have a personal, one-on-one, hands-on approach with Jesus. He's heard the good from the community, and he's heard the bad from his Pharisee friends, and he wants to investigate Jesus on his own. There's a very important lesson we have to learn as we get started with this is how we come here to church, how you approach Christianity, how you approach God, and how you approach Jesus has to come with an open and willing mind. The Pharisees as a whole were already closed-minded to Jesus. They wanted really nothing to do with Him. He was disrupting their way of life. But Nicodemus, he was at least willing to hear Jesus out. You know, so it begins with us asking, do I, can I honestly say I know everything there is to know? Would I be so bold and so proud to say I've got it all figured out? Maybe you're here this morning and you've come as a skeptic. 
I'm here because mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, aunt, uncle, boyfriend, girlfriend, they made me be here, and I don't really want to be here, but I'm here. This message is for you. Maybe you're here and you've already accepted Jesus Christ. This message is for you to bring you into an awe of how much God loves you. Maybe you're here and you just don't know what you're looking for. This could be true. It could not be true. But where we have to begin is we have to begin to the idea that we have to be open. We have to be willing that God has something to reveal to us that we've maybe never encountered or has never quite hit home. It was a time in my life I thought I had everything figured out. Remember those days? Yeah, they were good, weren't they? There's a time, for example, there's a time my dad was stronger than your dad. Anybody ever done that? My dad can beat your dad up. Yeah, and then I got stronger than my dad, and I knew that probably wasn't right. <laughs> there's a time that my dad was the greatest athlete on the face of the planet, and then my mom revealed to me in my late teenage years that my dad had never played organized sports because he didn't have the money to do so. And so even though he may be an athletic, he was not trained in any sort of particular sport. So I, then I knew, okay, he's not the greatest athlete. But then there was a time I thought, okay, my dad is at least the greatest golfer ever in the world. And because I would go golfing with him, and he would just make me look horrendous. But about 10 years ago, I went golfing with my dad. I was out driving him, out putting him, out chipping him. And I thought, I know I'm not the greatest golfer in the world, so he's definitely not. He's just more consistent. So what I believed was altered because I had this encounter and these things that brought truth to it. There once was a preacher who had a debate with a well-known atheist professor, professor of philosophy and science. And during the debate, the professor was being so irritated with the preacher, he basically blasted out and cut off the preacher and said, Look, I am an atheist. I do not believe in God. I do not believe there is a God. And everything you're saying, I'm just tired of it. I'm done with it. Let's just be done with this debate. I'm ready to leave. This is a waste of my time. Now, many of us in that situation would get very defensive. The preacher looked at the professor, the atheist. He said, would you do an experiment with me? The atheist said, okay, sure. So I'm going to draw a circle on this board, and we're just going to say that this circle represents everything that a human being can know pertaining to life, physics, mathematics, uh, science, the universe, all things pertaining to life. That's what this circle represents. You are a very intelligent man. You teach others. You, you've written books. You go to conferences. You, you teach at a very high-profile university. So in all that there is to know about life, all the knowledge one can grab in life, about life, and about all things life, would you be willing to say that you know all of it? The professor looked at him and said, no, I cannot say that. Matter of fact, I do not believe any one person can know everything that is pertaining to life in the span of their lifetime. They can study it, they can read it, but they will not have a full understanding or knowledge of it. So the preacher asked him, would, then, would you be willing to come and draw a circle within this circle representing how much you know about life. So the atheist came over and he looked at this circle. All things. Highly intelligent man. Highly opposed to God and the idea of God. Didn't believe there was a God. But as he looked at it, he decided that he was going to draw a fairly, fairly large circle within the circle. And as he stepped away, then the preacher wanted to clarify, this is what you say you know personally, compared to all things that are to be known? The atheist professor said, yes. He said, so would it then be possible to say the things outside of your knowledge are the things that pertain to God? Atheist looked at it, 
He looked at the preacher. He looked at him and goes, yes, that would be true. That this is what I know. There's all this outside of my own knowledge. And this could be what is related to God and the knowledge of God. Preacher comes back. So then would you be willing to say that you are no longer an atheist, one who believes there is no God, but you are rather an agnostic, one who believes they do not have the knowledge concerning God? The atheist professor looked at it. He looked at the preacher and looked at all gathering attendants. said, I've come to the conclusion that no intelligent human being can ever say there is no God because in the span of their lifetime, they will not be able to grab the complete knowledge of that. So I'm no longer an atheist, but I am an agnostic. It was not a conversion, okay? It wasn't like a happily ever after moment. But what it did is it moved someone who is completely opposed to God to a place that there may be a possibility that I am wrong. In this conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus, he takes a man that is coming who's willing and open to talking about God and talking about spiritual matters to come to this conclusion that, you know what, I may be wrong about this. Maybe that's where you are here this morning. You may have some false interpretations, some false beliefs concerning God, and you can understand exactly what Nicodemus is asking. Nicodemus begins the conversation there in verse 2 as a normal situation. He gives compliments. We understand you're a rabbi. We understand by the things you teach and by what you're doing that you are sent from God. And in that statement, he's revealing that the Pharisees are in this, this place that they don't know how to really deal with Jesus. Okay, you're doing these incredible things. We're hearing these incredible stories about you that you're doing, yet at the same time, you're not fitting what we think you should look like and what you should be doing. So the Pharisees already blocked him off. Again, Nicodemus came with an open mind. He's willing to have an interaction with Jesus for Jesus to explain things. And so Jesus begins says, saying that you must be born again. And all, automatically, Nicodemus has an issue. Nicodemus is an old man, and his issue is he's thinking physically, and Jesus is trying to get him to think spiritually. Nicodemus' complaint is that, you know what? How can an old man like myself, how can he be born again? How can he re-enter his mother's womb? And that's just a gross picture, but that's what he's trying. I don't understand how that happens. So Jesus relays to him. If you look there in verse 9, I'm sorry, look there in verse 5. He says, I tell you, unless someone is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 6, whatever is born of flesh is flesh, and what is born of spirit is spirit. What Jesus is revealing is, look, we all are born in the flesh. We all have bodies. And here's the reality of life. I know this is not the uplifting part of the message, but here's the reality of life. We all have in common, we're all going to die. That's flesh. Our bodies are slowly going to start to deteriorate. Some of you all have learned that as days and years have gone on. You've learned that I cannot do the things I used to do when I was younger. I can try, but I'm going to feel it a lot longer the days after. That's the flesh. Our body is slowly dying. The reason it is slowly dying is because we're all infected with sin. Sin is killing us. And Jesus is trying to take Nicodemus from this idea, understanding the flesh, we're born in this flesh that is corrupted with sin. And unless that corruption is dealt with, we will die in our sin and we will be separated from God forever. So you must be born again. You must be born again spiritually. There's not a person in this room can, can oppose the idea that we're going to die. You can't. We all have it in common. What the Bible says and what Jesus came to do is to deal with our sin problem. 
Because unless our sin problem is dealt with, we will be separated from God eternally in hell. So Jesus says you have to be born again. You have to be born of the Spirit. You have to become an eternal creature where your sin has been taken care of. And then he goes on to talk about how this works, and it's by faith. And this is where Nicodemus, once again, kind of brings a rebuke. In verse 9, he says, how can these things be? And here's what Nicodemus is struggling with that many of us may be struggling with in this place right now, that we have this false belief. See, Nicodemus, being a Pharisee, believed that if I just do enough good things, enough right things, then I'll be right with God and I will seal my salvation in heaven. I will be eternally in heaven with God if I just do enough good things, enough right things. But what Jesus revealed is you can do all the good stuff in your life. You can be a completely good person. You can die and people can say, you know what? They were a good person and none of that matters before a perfect, holy God. Unless your sin's dealt with. Jesus was trying to tell Nicodemus in love, you know what, you can do all these things, but even on your best day, in your best moment, you cannot be 100% pure and 100% perfect, 100% holy. And because you cannot do that on your own, you will die in your sin. This was totally shattering Nicodemus' life, his philosophy, what he was teaching others. So Jesus then takes an approach where he makes it relational to Nicodemus. There in verse 14, he takes Nicodemus to a story that he would have been familiar with. It's a story that takes place in the book of Numbers. In the book of Numbers, God has brought his people out of slavery, but they've been continuously rebellious. That is what sin is. Sin is rebelling against God's will, against God's ways, his, his holiness and his loving grace. It's rebelling against that. It's saying that I know better than God. And God's people continued to do that. And so God spoke out, you stiff-necked, hard-hearted people. Because you continue to rebel against me, I'm going to show you the reality of your rebellion, the reality of your sin. And so God sent what would be similar to a plague of snakes coming into the camp, biting the people. And people began dying. They began coming to the reality that we are going to die. And we're going to die in our sin and our rebellion unless something has happened. So they cry out to God. And God tells Moses, you're going to build this, this bronze snake and you're going to put it in the middle of the camp. And when people look to the snake, they will be healed of their, of their bites and they will be protected from any other bites that come from the snakes. It sounded so stupid that a lot of people said that's ridiculous and they didn't do it and they died. They died in their sin. They died in the rebellion. And when Jesus is coming to Nicodemus, he says, you know what, I'm going to be just like that snake, I'm going to be lifted up, but not in the middle of the camp. I'm going to be lifted up on a cross for the world to see. I'm going to die for the rebellion and the sin of the people. And if they would just look to me, if they would just have faith in looking to me, they can be completely forgiven. They've been given salvation, not by anything they've done, not by any resume they bring, not by anything they think they can achieve on their own. If they just look to me and me alone, I will save them, forgive them completely, because that's how much God loves them. And from that statement, he makes John 3, 16. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. See, God loves you. God loves you. And he does not want you to be separated from him forever. 
That's why Jesus came. And a lot of us have heard some bad presentation of the Bible. Some bad philosophy with life. And a lot of us are living trying to be good enough. A lot of us are living trying not to do enough bad things or do more good things than bad things. A lot of us are living that we can do this on our own or this doesn't even matter and it's in this room right now in this place. Because you're thinking just to look to one man named Jesus who died on a cross, that's so stupid. It's too simple. That can't be the remedy. But that's what God asks us to have faith like a child. To look to one person who lived a life we could not live, who died a sin that we should die, who was buried and came out of the tomb. That's why we celebrate Easter. We could be forgiven. And it all begins with God loves. He has nothing to do with what you and I bring to the table. It has everything that God took the initiative. He loved you. And the reason I think we struggle with that, that God loves me, is because we have limits, right? We'll let someone push us so far before we'll, you know, right hand of fellowship, right? We'll let someone get away with so much before we put them in their place because we have limits. But this statement is that God loves you is without limits. It's timeless. It doesn't ask you to do anything of your own, but simply look to the Son for your salvation. There's nothing you can do, but it's simply that God stepped out of the heavens to demonstrate He loves you. He is for you. That word loved there in the original language of the Bible means God dearly prizes you. He holds you dear to His heart. He doesn't look at you as someone who deserves hell, someone who deserves death. He looks at you as someone who deserves life. So no matter what you think, well, you know, Pastor, you don't know my background. You don't know where I, what things I've done. You know what God does? He loves you. He looks at you and says, I don't care. I died for that. And what he does is he offers a gift. It says, God so loved the world that he gave. You know what a gift is? A gift is something we don't deserve. Something to giving freely. No expectations except that we receive it. And so that's God's gift. It's a gift of grace. It's something that we do not deserve. It's something that we cannot earn. It's simply that God loves us, that he was moved to action to save us, and he gives us, and so he puts this gift out. And if you receive a gift, what do you do? Thank you, right? So God holds out his gift of his son and say, look, this is my son, my perfect son who died for your sin. I poured out my wrath upon him for you. And all you have to do is say, you know what? I am a sinner. I, I do things I know I should not do, things that may go against my parents, my grandparents, things I wish no one else know. I do those things. That is what sin is. And if I don't have my sin dealt with, if I don't look to a savior, I will die in my sin and be eternally separated from God. If I just look, I just put my trust in him. Nicodemus going through this conversation with Jesus did not understand everything Jesus was saying. Okay? He didn't. And maybe that's where you are. You, I don't understand how all that works. That's fine. God doesn't ask you to. Simply begin by understanding that God who created the heavens and the earth, who created you in his image, loves you. He's not out to ditch you. He's out to save you. Matter of fact, Jesus would go on to say in verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. God loves you. 
And if you would look to the Savior, place your faith and your trust in Him for the salvation of your sin, there's forgiveness of your sins and the salvation of your soul, the promise is you will not perish. The word perish in John 3.16 means you will be completely destroyed without the forgiveness of your sins. Completely destroyed. People bark at that and say, how can you say God is a God of love if God would send people to hell? J.P. Moreland was interviewed by a guy named Lee Strobel in the book Case for Christ, and he writes concerning hell that hell, according to Scripture, is a separation or a banishment from the most beautiful thing in the world, God himself. It is the exclusion from anything that matters, from all value, not only from God, but also from those who have come to know and love him. Hell is the final sentence that says that you refuse regularly to live for the purpose for which you were made, and the only alternative is to sentence you away for all eternity. So it is punishment. But it's also the natural consequence of a life that has been lived in a certain direction. Each day we're preparing ourselves to either being with God and His people and valuing the things He values or choosing not to engage with those things. Hell is filled with people who for all eternity still want to be the center of their universe and who persist in their God-defying rebellion. Ultimately what hell is is God's last act of love for eternity because God is not going to force you to love him back. He's going to give you the choice. And what hell comes down to is people who have decided for their entire life that they're choosing not to have God. And so in God's last act of mercy and last act of love, he gives people what they want for eternity, an eternity without him. Timothy Keller writes, All God does in the end with people is give them what they wanted most, and that includes freedom from himself. But that's not God's will for you. God's will is that you would be saved. God's will that you would come to a saving knowledge of how much he loves you through Jesus Christ. God's will that you would come to an understanding that you have sin in your life. Unless sin is dealt with, you will be separated. You will perish. The Bible uses the word sin as an idea of missing the mark. It's kind of like if you drew a target. We all are familiar with bullseyes. God's target is holiness and perfection and and that we do it 100% of the time, all the time. The problem is, even in our best moment, our best day, we're firing way out here. We're not even coming close. And so the word sin was taken from the world in Rome in which you would miss the target completely. They would yell out sin. And that's what sin is. We frequently, consistently miss God's holiness and God's perfection all the time. And because we do that, the Bible says that the wages, the cost of that sin is death. It's, it's the perishing. It's being separated from God eternally. And unless someone takes our aim and moves it back to the target, we will die in that sin and be eternally separated from God. And this is what Jesus did. Jesus took our sin on the cross. He took our punishment. He held out His arms and said, God, blame me. Blame me for everything that they do. And he did it for the entire world, for anyone who would accept it. And God poured out his wrath upon Jesus so that you and I, even though we have these bad shots, he moves our shots here in the middle, on target, 
Because by our faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, we are then clothed with the righteousness of Christ, the holiness of God. God no longer looks at us in our sin, but he looks at us as saints. He looks at us as children of God, not by anything we've done, simply because God loves you. God loves you. But if we don't, if we don't, the reality is we'll be lost forever. So God brings us here today, if we've already accepted this truth, one is just to come to an awe and awareness. Man, God is for me, not against me. He's not here to condemn me, but lift me up. He's to give me the victory. And I'm to live in that victory. I'm to shine that victory as I go out of this place. I'm to love people as he loved me and give people grace as he gave me grace. I'm just to be a representative of his kingdom and his love and his awesomeness. If I'm here today, I've been a skeptic or closed-minded, then God has presented the reality that I still need Jesus. I can fool everybody else. I can fool the preacher. I can fool mom and dad. I can fool my boyfriend, girlfriend, my husband, or my wife. But if I know in my heart I have yet to accept Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, I've yet to put my faith and trust in Him and Him alone, and I've yet to confess Him and follow Him in the waters of baptism, I'll be lost. So the invitation is this. Are you ready to accept the gift that God has for you? The Bible says that God created us for a relationship with Him. And our sins separate us from that relationship, from that presence. We can't do anything about our sin problem, can't be good enough, can't work enough, can't have a good enough resume. But Jesus loved us so much, and God loved us so much that Jesus willing gave up his life to die for our sins, that when we place our faith and trust in him, we might be forgiven and have eternal security. The invitation is for everyone here. Young, old, rich, poor, good, bad, ugly. Everyone. God loves you. I'm going to ask some deacons to come down as the worship team comes on down as well. If you need to accept Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, that's why we're here. The Bible says, I admit I'm a sinner. believe Jesus died for my sins and rose again, and I confess Him as Lord and Savior. I'm going to ask you just to come, and if you want to pray with me, I'd love to celebrate with you. Just come and say, I need Jesus, and I want Jesus in my life today. I've got a couple of deacons down here. You can talk with them if you'd rather talk with them. But if you know this is something that needs to be taken care of, now's the time to respond. Let this be the day of your salvation. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us. Thank you, Lord, that you don't ask us to have it all figured out. You don't even ask us to have our life all put together. You simply call us to accept your love for us. Lord, I pray right now in this moment for anyone who does yet to do this, that you just draw them off their feet, draw them down the aisle, and confess that they want Jesus in their life. They want to be forgiven. Father, if there's anyone here that has done this and they believe this, but they've yet to follow through with baptism. Lord, we know this isn't something we do to be saved, but it's something we do in response that we are following you and we're trusting in you. But Lord, if, if someone here is yet to do that, let it be the day that they come down and say, you know, I want to be baptized. I need to be baptized. Father, you know our hearts. Lord, you know we as your people at times forget this incredible truth that you love us. You're for us. You're not against us. And nothing, nothing can separate us from the love you have for us. But Lord, forgive us those times we lose sight of that. Let us be a people 
who preach your love. Let us be a people who accept your love. Let us be people who love those that you bring into our life. Father, let us lift you up and you alone. Mass is time to become the invitation. Lord, you know exactly what everybody needs to do in this situation. You've placed it upon their heart. Lord, I ask you just to move them and draw them to your presence. I give you praise for you alone are worthy of it. Praise in your son's name, amen. However God has spoken to you, I invite you to come.